0: Ideally, you want to keep getting surprised by any new piece of information that you're bumping up against. And if it's not surprising, it better at least be entertaining, because if it's neither of those things, you should probably put it aside and move on.
1: Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information, and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload, Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Rohit Krishnan. Rohit is investment director at leading global venture capital firm Unbound, focusing on software and fintech. He previously founded Eight Roads Ventures and was leader of McKinsey's growth tech practice. He is also author of the fascinating Strange Loop Canon Substack. He shares wonderful insights on his Twitter account at Krishnan Rohit, K R I S H N A N R O H I T, and his Substack can be found at strangeloopcanon.com. In this episode, you will learn about looking for surprise, passionate curiosity, dynamic loops, creating your worldview, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Rohit's great insights. Rohit, it's fabulous to have you on the show.
0: Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ross.
1: So you are an investor, and I think it's fair to call a thinker as well, but as an investor, you have so many opportunities in such a fast changing world. So how is it that you keep across all of the change and all the things you need to be aware of?
0: It's a great question. I would say that the type of investor that I am, I work in venture capital, which means primarily I work with companies that are at rather early in the stage of development, right? I mean, Series A, Series B sort of companies. And in many cases, what you're trying to buy into is a little bit of what the vision of the future is likely to be for those companies. So I think two things are important and they're slightly contradictory or orthogonal, I would say. Thing number one is that you need to have a pretty open mind to see all of the things that are going on in the world around you, uh, technological development, social development, consumer developments, business developments, etc so that you can look at them and kind of see, you know, where the puck is going to as as the phrase goes. The second is that you need to try and dive usually rather deep into individual niches, so you can use those macro themes and understand how those impact specific points, like, I don't know, open source software or banking infrastructure or what have you. The way that I've at least approached some of these conversations is to mainly focus on things that I'm most interested in which I think is perhaps the only enduring way to kind of do this, quite frankly. Uh, Mm. Because initially, at least I had a very sort of focused or frameworked kind of point of view where you would start from, this is what the world is going to look like. Therefore, these are the sectors that are going to grow. Therefore, these are the technologies, et cetera, et cetera. But what I realized is that that form of thinking is like you trying to analyze and come up with every startup's mission statement from the top down, which is an incredibly hard job. I mean, it's much easier to kind of focus on things that you're most curious about, passionate about, things where you spend your time regardless, because that, that's the only thing that can give you a little bit of an edge.
1: Well, why don't we sort of push out, go down into the weeds now and maybe we can come back to, to some of those themes. So what, what are you, what are your information habits? What what's the first information you touch in the morning and how do you touch it? What do what, what do you how do you start your information day? Where do you go? How do you do that?
0: It's a good question. It keeps changing because I feel the information habits that I have are rarely the same information habits that stay over a period of time. So if we were having this conversation, I don't know, last year, I would probably have said books that I'm reading articles that i have bookmarked that i'm going back to maybe some podcasts that i'm listening to recently i've been doing a lot more of that through twitter i find it both delightfully serendipitous and a wonderfully random collection of things that comes across which is which is great right cuz i need a little bit of randomness in my feed currently i mean if i think about it i think a large portion of my information diet is self-selected books that i'm reading sort of there's at any point, uh, several books on Kindle that I'm at least kind of reading, going back and forth, some fiction, some nonfiction that I kind of like. Any article that I like, I bookmark onto Pocket because that just helps me go back to it when I get the time. And those come from a variety of sort of normal websites and things that I track. I have a bookmarks folder that I go through, sort of, or have built over several years at this point, from aggregators like Arts and literature daily to like anything else, right? Occasional, like the usual New Yorker type stuff or, you know, other long forms. Changes over the last year, a large number of sub-stacks have been added to it, as you would imagine, which kind of feeds into the information diet. I used to read a lot more news. Now I read it very less. I mean, it's only for the main headline, so to speak, occasional scanning, but I do read a lot more in-depth pieces essay type pieces opinion pieces to kind of get to it occasionally i listen to podcasts um not too many just because i find that i just don't have enough time to listen to that many podcasts i read the transcripts of several podcasts for the ones that comes out because it's just much faster and easier depending on which ones that are uh, most interesting to me it's a little bit of a combination and which part of this I spend more time on depends at any point in like where I want to kind of focus, you know, like if at times I feel like I have been over indexing on reading about tech news, for example, then I just kind of reduce that for a period of time and kind of over index on something else that is actually valuable. Some of these things are easier because I have to kind of keep up with whatever, you know, tech stuff for work anyway, which means like I will, even if I reduce it, I will have enough of a buffer that I can know what's kind of going on. Whereas some of the other ones, like which books that I'm reading, or like what are the what are the items or ideas or sectors that I'm most interested in, or like segments of the world that I want to learn more about, or history that I'm le- reading, those are usually a function of what I'm most interested in at any given point in time. That was a bit of a rambling answer, but hopefully, like it gives you the main components in there.
1: Yes, well, I mean, the thing is that you know there is we have lots of information sources. I mean, you 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 and your role need lots of information sources, so. Our listeners as well are interested what what are the scope of that so is there a particular times of day you it's use a, yeah I mean it's,
0: yeah I mean I was just gonna say about the the variety of information sources I think one of the things I found is that I try and look at it a little bit like you know applying the Shannon entropy model you know it's like I want the next piece of information that I'm reading to surprise me as much as possible otherwise like like there are a hundred thousand articles that kind of say roughly similar stuff and have slight variants of the same ish kind of pieces of information, which don't help me that much. Right. So like, but neither for the job nor for personal satisfaction. So if I'm reading, I don't know, like here are the five trends that are going to change the future. And the first trend is AI. I kind of know what that the rest of it's going to be like. So I use, I mean, there's no point in me reading that. If I'm reading something highly specific about, that really nitty gritty weeds or a scientific paper about how transformer models are changing. Actually, that could be helpful, but there's a point at which there is diminishing returns to me learning more about it. So you gotta kind of ride that curiosity wave. So your information density is high enough, but and that ideally you wanna keep getting surprised by any new piece of information that you're bumping up against. And if it's not surprising, it better at least be entertaining because if it's neither of those things, you should probably put it aside and move on.
1: Yes. No, I think looking for surprise is critical. And it's, you know, the, the more we can sensitize ourselves to things that are surprising. And and one of the other advantages as well is that it helps us to be more familiar with our potential confirmation biases. So if we say, oh, that's uh, surprising because it's disconfirming evidence, then uh, that's something I should be paying more attention to.
0: No, I completely agree. I think one of the things that I've been thinking more about recently, at least, is that is very common I would say to think about I don't know pieces of information that come at you you kind of analyze it and then you fight against the confirmation bias kind of things and especially to then judge the article that you read or the book that you read or the blog that you read and say you know oh yeah yeah that that was pointless you know it, it, like we kind of do this on an ongoing basis right so they, we can curate the information sources something that I kind of force myself to do is that, if it is surprising to me or if it provides a new and interesting lens to view the world with, I think of that as time well spent, regardless of whether or not I believe in its conclusion, yes. which I find to be reasonably helpful as a habit and it's it happens all the time and like when you're reading about tech, it happens a lot if you're reading about anything in social sciences, it happens a hell of a lot where you know you might accept some of the premises you like the the argumentation that they have taken or the syllogisms that they put in or the rhetoric but you might not agree with the conclusion for a variety of reasons i i find that to be i mean it's a change that i've been trying to do over a few years but and sort of i think i'm getting better at it it definitely helps make me far less annoyed at the stuff that i read on the internet which is uh one of the main goals isn't it,
1: it who is um one of the sort of formative experiences in my life, I used to work for, I was global director of capital markets at Thompson Financial a very long time ago. And one of the, our favorite analysts, the salespeople go out to the client and says, I love this particular analyst. I, I disagree with everything he says, but he makes me think. <laughs> you know, that's valuable.
0: And that's the that's the best thing that you want in an information source or in any person in most conversations for that matter. Yeah. like. It, it has to be either surprising and informative or uh, or entertaining, ideally both. Yeah.
1: So, so do you have any schedules for sort of your know, scanning or your sort of more spending deeper time with simulating information or is there a there structural lack of structure to that?
0: No, is the answer. And most of it is because I work very badly in putting schedules on myself unless it's superimposed by someone else. I'm very good at doing what I want to do because whatever is at the top of the priority list kind of gets done. If it's stuff that I like, you know, whether it's reading a book or writing an essay or, you know, whatever. I'm very bad at saying things like 9.30 to 10.30 is the time for me to listen to X or, you know, do X because I just find it really hard to work. And I find it very hard to switch my brain into that rhythm. So, I think I treat my information diet roughly the same way that I treat my normal diet where if I don't want to eat, I don't know, cakes and pastries and chips all the time, the only way that I can solve that or the best way that I found to solve that is just to not have it around me and like just make me interested in eating something else, which is kind of what I focus on on the information stuff as well. Try not to go into silly rabbit holes and just like focus on the stuff that is interesting to you and at any given point in time, I will say something that has significantly changed that is um, I I have two young kids and especially after my sort of second son was born, like the number of hours I have as free time kind of drops off precipitously as one would imagine. As a consequence, you're forced to become far more productive in the hours that you have left which means that there is an automatic forcing function at any given point to say, Hey, do you want to watch that Netflix show or read this book? Or do you want to be doing something else? And it's kind of an implicit calculation that goes on, which is far more pleasing to me than a schedule.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we all have to find what works for us. And uh, certainly if if it, it it sounds like it works for you.
0: Yeah. I've tried to make chaos my friend. I find it to be the one thing that actually works reasonably well for me.
1: Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. So, probably the first thing that, you know, made me interested in your work was you have a channel, Strange Loop Canon. So I'm a lifelong fan of... uh, Godelerbach and Douglas Hofstadter's work and the concept of strange loops and their implications. So there's a bit of a broader piece around this, around mental models, and yeah, you know, perhaps in whatever way you'd like. I mean, I'd like to say, well, what is it that draw you to this concept of strange loops, and what relevance does it have to the way in which you build your mental models?
0: I first read Godelerbach when I was, I think, very early in college, and it's one of those books that just blows you out of the water in the sense that fits together so many disparate streams of human knowledge and tries to link them together in a pleasing narrative, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I think it's one of the few books that at least during that time I read and reread and I just loved and it stayed with me for a long period of time, which is why sort of several years later when I wanted to kind of write about at least a broad swath of topics around tech, culture, economics, um, industry. I wanted to sort of use something that at least was very helpful to me you asked about mental models i think two of the things that really attract me to the idea of strange loops in the first place is that strange loops are self-referential which i think we all are i mean that's one of the core properties of consciousness it was what uh, Hofstadter, uh wrote about right i i find that idea to be really interesting and fascinating because if you think about the economy overall as a complex adaptive system then strange loops effectively are kind of all around us right i mean things that we do impact the output that we want which impacts the next input that we want to give to a particular system and this goes on and on forever that to me is incredibly interesting and and a useful way at least to kind of look at the world and the different ways in which causal arrows intersect so i guess that's kind of You know one part of the answer the second part on mental models i would say i'm a little bit more like mungarian in my thoughts in the sense that i think mental models are a little bit like i mean we talked earlier about you know if you're reading an article or a book and it helps you think in a particular fashion that's its true gift as opposed to its conclusion or as opposed to its facts mental models are basically just that like it is a way for you to think ideally relatively quickly, but even otherwise about topics that you don't usually have huge amounts of domain expertise in or like huge amounts of knowledge in that you haven't spent 30 years owning. You can use your mental models to kind of use a a series of them ideally to figure out does this thing even kind of make sense, which is what its primary uses. So I think of the combination of these two as trying to create a little bit like a incredulity filter, you know, Like most things we see and we are like, oh my God, how can the world work like that? Or how can this particular thing work like that? And the mental models help in at least putting several pieces of thought pathways that at least you can look and say, ah, I see there is one pathway by which this particular line of argumentation makes a lot of sense. Or there is one pathway by which this decision actually makes a little bit of sense. So, I mean, that's at least to me, a bigger point about mental models. It's not about, learning frameworks it's about developing frameworks repeatedly so that you have shorthands to remember what you thought about before because you don't want to start thinking everything from the first principle onwards every single time that'd be quite inefficient i would imagine
1: so i suppose part of the the base of my question is the is using the concepts of reflect reflexivity in mental models of thinking about the world and so part of that can be expressed in systems Mm -hmm. dynamics systems modeling, and so on? Do you use systems uh, modeling or systems thinking tools uh, explicitly?
0: I think explicitly, I do do it when I want to try to understand something better. I do find that, you know, if you want to understand a little bit more about the economy, I mean, inflation is a big topic, you want to understand more about inflation, it's helpful, at least it was for me when I was learning about it to kind of draw different boxes about, you know, whether it's consumer demand, consumer demand for multiple types of topics and like, you know, these come from individual firms, the firms make products. In order to do that, you have to make an investment. In order to do the investment, you have to get financing. In order to get the financing, you have to get a particular rate. There's a demand for money. You draw this out and you kind of link the arrows between these pieces. It helps you create a better model of what exactly is going on in the world, which is kind of really helpful. So that's one way by which the explicit part of it is really really helpful i feel people underuse it a lot i i genuinely don't find enough people using it in their life if they want to find out how something works once you have a few pieces once you've done this a little bit in some areas at least if you want to employ it in your work it is much harder to do that explicitly just because these are about you learning to ask the right questions as opposed to trying to get a quantitative answer at the end of it, right? Like when I was trying to learn how to do um, investing in startups, you could do all of the sort of framework analysis, but that's not going to help you because ultimately, Indeed. like, I mean, I'll give you an example. When I first started, I had a, a spreadsheet, I still do, of like 20 different metrics that I thought were most important. And some were qualitative, like, you know, how good the management team? Some were quantitative, like how fast they're growing. Because I was like, I'm just going to pop it there. I have some sense of which ones I think are important. But like, if I look back in a couple of years, a few years, I'll at least know, you know, the companies that I thought were going to succeed. Did they succeed or did they fail? And use that as a as an answer. And a few years in, a lot of the things that I thought were important were just like, it didn't matter. And a lot of the things I didn't think were important did matter. But the process of actually doing this explicitly helps kind of hone that. So then you get to have, you know, when somebody's new in the industry, you get to have these conversations like, oh, yeah, I want to look at that company. And I think they are interesting because their product is interesting. However, they're not growing fast enough. And at the same time, their competitors are producing these different things that could create a complementor. you know, and they're burning too much. But at the same time, you might look at a different company that is growing slower, but has a higher burn, but might be more interesting. Like there is no if loop that allows you to solve this because your mental models then come in and say that, like, In this particular situation, you should overweight product. Or in this particular situation, you should overweight go to market. Or in this particular situation, you should overweight, you know, what the broader market is going to do to you. I think that's the learning that you need to get to, and that's the ideal state you continue to try to improve on as you want to kind of get to a decision-making process. But um, explicit structuring is, I think, highly useful and, you know, dramatically underused in... uh, learning how to think about new pieces of topics. And I think part of the reason is that, you know, doing it just feels like a little bit of a waste when you're doing it, just because there's no reason for you to be doing it. Do you know what I mean? Like, nobody's asking you for it. It's not a deliverable. It doesn't help you say things to someone else very easily. So you've got to kind of do it for yourself a little bit, at least in the large parts of our uh, our economy anyway.
1: Though I do think it would be valuable for people to be thinking more systemically. So one, one example is, you know, you've got your business model canvas and a whole bunch of other similar tools, none of which have any reference to any self-reinforcing loops in them. And so we do have Jim Collins' flywheel and uh, Case van der Heiden's business idea from way back, which were implicitly, you know, looking at what are the self-reinforcing loops that underlie a business model. But I think that's a massive gap in how most people are explicitly thinking about business models, that they just don't look at what are the self-reinforcing loops in there?
0: Yes, and I would say that, like, you know, I'd like to pick on something you said. I think a large part of the conversations about business models and how to understand it, at least from an education point of view, is highly static stuff, right? Like, you write down a comprehensive list of things that you can think about in all different boxes. It becomes a box-filling exercise very quickly. But which boxes are important is far more interesting than, you know, did you fill the box in the first place? Like, and that is a much harder thing to kind of make people understand. I think this is one of those areas where if you've done it a lot, there is a tacit learning that you get in identifying which parts of it are most interesting or most important which is kind of what the the training process is for. So that's part of that is identifying the actual dynamic loops that you kind of talked about. Right. I mean, yeah, their product is not great today, but like look at the velocity by which they're improving. So if you wait a couple of years, they're actually going to be really good. And if they manage to do this much with the OK product, think what they can do with something great, which is an example of like a line of thought that is very hard to just make someone draw in a diagram, but you see it a few times suddenly, like the pattern recognition really helps. I think to your point, the dynamic loops there are super important, but and it's also important to kind of use, um, I was gonna say stories or narratives, but that's perhaps not the right word, but like to kind of really try to verbalize what that future state is likely to be and how you're gonna get from here to there. Because in describing that or in kind of drawing that out, you're forced, to kind of define some of those loops in the first place because you're—it it is very difficult for you to describe a situation a year down the line or two years down the line when companies are doing X without having some sense of how they get to that X from where they are today.
1: Yes, yes. The, and I think that there's many investors and people in the startup scene that would be well served by, I suppose, a little bit more uh, exposure to, to some of some of these ideas of uh, you know dynamic loops and how they can their impact and uh, thinking through those bringing those into the the you know Im- explicit and implicit models of uh, startups. Hundred percent. So to to round out, you know, you uh, I'm sure many people look to you for advice on all sorts of issues based on your you know success and your experience, but like to just sort of tap your quick advice. So somebody who's uh, aspiring VC, for for example, what would your advice be to them to how it is they can thrive on yeah, you know, and and TechVC in particular, you know, you've got to follow all of these emerging trends technology in technology terms of all of the overlays in the economy, as well as look at all of the, you know, emerging uh, sectors, markets, competitions. There's a lot. <laughs> so how, what's your advice on uh, how someone should uh, keep on top of that and thrive?
0: I'm going to make a meta point first, which is that like my biggest piece of advice when people ask me this question is to, is to ask the question back about like, do you actually want to be a VC? And I'm not sure that enough people understand what the job is or understand why they want to do it beyond sort of a general feeling that it is an interesting job that they would like. It's totally okay, but I just want to kind of make that better point because it's linked to my my core piece of advice on getting the right amounts of information of doing it, which is that uh, coming back to the original point, like Focus on what you're most interested in, what you're most curious about and lean into that. The big difference that I find in good VCs or good investors, good anything, I suppose, is that they like what they do. And I don't mean this in just a, you know, uh, jobs, your passion kind of sense. I mean it in the sense that they would be people who would be reading up about fintech anyway as opposed to having to read about FinTech for the job. And that distinction is crucial because ultimately a large part of at least my job is about reading all of these, a bunch of different sources and trying to kind of know what's going on in the world and talking to a large number of entrepreneurs and other VCs to figure out what they think is going on in the world and how their company is doing. Right. So you're constantly synthesizing information that is coming your way because you have a worldview like I'll give you an example. You might have, you know, I asked this in sort of interviews and stuff of like a sector thesis. What do you think is, you know, what do you think is interesting? What do you think is likely to happen? And it doesn't really matter what the answer is, but they need to have a point of view. And that point of view will evolve, right? I mean, you talk to 200 companies and people like will change and evolve, but you're only really going to evolve it if you have a worldview first, which only comes if you're actually interested in it first. Beyond that, in terms of sort of information um, intake, I think there is the normal sources of like whatever, you know, the tech crunch crunch based stuff where you get the immediate information about fundraisings and stuff like that, that's going on in the world. Broader world stuff about like, you know, trends, etc. It's probably extraordinarily well covered, but I would say there's a vast variety of sub stacks that you can read that actually helps in that. I mean, whether it's uh, broad stuff like, um, Uh, not boring or like the generalist or any number of these ones there is in your information curiosity diet I think you should have at least some of this how do you think about the world kind of stuff in there and that is very much idiosyncratic you should read things that actually make you excited about the world and think about the world and actually make you want to engage with the world and for that I think that what you choose is It almost doesn't matter, but you should choose something that allows you to create your own worldview.
1: That's fantastic. And uh, hopefully we'll get more VCs that follow your advice. Thanks so much for your time, Rohit. It's been a fabulous conversation.
0: Indeed, this was wonderful. Thanks for having me on, Ross, And congratulations on the book. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.